0: Between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. And unto this, Mass Movement, destined to bear the jeweled crown of geekdom upon its troubled brow, it is we, Mass Movement's chroniclers, who alone can tell thee of its saga. Let us tell you of the days of geek adventure. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of Geekarama. This time I'm just going to speak to Edie Evans, the author of Time for My Generation to Die, Marla Watson, the f- incredible photojournalist behind the new book My Punk Rock Life, and Ella Wright, the director of JFK One Day in America, a new series that's about to premiere on National Geographic. So without further ado, let's meet Edie Evans, the author of Time for My Generation to Die. Can you see me? So I can't see you at the moment, Can but I I cannot see you, but it doesn't matter because we're all on audio. So how are you, Edie?
1: I'm doing grand. Thanks so much. And thank you so much for uh, asking to speak to me. I'm really, really shocked about that.
0: (laughs) That's all right. We 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 share a common bond with (laughs) Earth Island. So I think, you know, we need to help each other out as we can. So what brought you to poetry?
1: Oh, boy. So I am a lifelong poet. Okay. Um, I have been thinking in rhyme since I could think. Oh, so cool. it's a blessing and a burden. <laughs> because I constantly turn things into rhyme in my head. And I pro—I think it's probably because I was raised on Dr. Seuss and that had a lot to do with it.
2: Okay. But
1: um, it's always been my go-to. And I have to be really honest with you. I really hate poetry. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a punk poet who writes poetry because I have to but not necessarily because I want to um, right. and I, I just because so much of the poetry I've heard and hear and see uh, currently it's um, is crap <laughs> to,
0: put it, to put it mildly I mean I, I, um, I went to university twice the first time was for but well, I studied English literature and I cannot usually stand poetry. And I think <laughs> because you have it rammed down your throat and you have to learn what they what you're told are the classic poets. <clears throat> and none of them are, because it's all just meaningless waffle. But they wrote. Because it was all about well, I want to charm some ladies, so I'm gonna write some meaningless yeah. verse and try and you know make sure she hears it. Um whereas Beat poetry and punk poetry has more of a sort of authentic street feel and more in common life.
1: I totally agree. And, you know, I mean, it's stuff that you can relate to. It also looks into, into you know, darker things. Um, right. Which, what, one problem I really have is so many of um, modern poetry that I see, you know, especially spoken word poets on Instagram and you know TikTok and blah blah. It's very self indulgent. It's usually um, not well thought out. It's like somebody threw up something on a piece of paper and decided to read it. Uh, right. To me, poetry is a craft, and an art. And I use my words to tell stories, as opposed <laughs> to writing. You know, masturbatory works about you know love that left my life, or you know, <laughs> um, I, I I was a performer in the in the East Village. And, that scene was huge and i'm sorry about the parrot if he gets really crazy i'll get him out of here that's but- <laughs> fine
0: i've got I've an ancient beagle lying next to me on the sofa he intermittently starts scratching at everything and everything so there
1: you go yeah. so you know in the in the village poetry scene there was you know a big thing about who could be cooler than who and there was you know that kind of ridiculousness going on so a lot of people wrote Poems about death and heroin—things that have just been written about way too much—and I got really sick of it. So I decided that my job was to tell stories that would engage an audience and interest them. And um, that's always been my take: is that I write for the oral tradition. And if you're writing for the oral tradition, you want to write something people give a shit about.
0: Right? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So how did you I mean you you you, you came from the 70s you, you were in the you were in the beginning of the punk rock scene in London and then New York so did you find punk rock or did punk rock find you
1: That's such a good question I'd say uh punk rock found me Right um because you know I was I was like 17 well, part of, part of. and i was so bored of the crap i was hearing on the radio day in and day out and i was lucky enough also to be a dj in my high school radio station mm. so i was exposed to a lot of different kinds of music and the first music that i really was exposed okay. to that people just weren't listening to at the time that i really promoted was a lot of reggae and that naturally sort of turned into, you know, reggae, ska, punk, rocksteady, you know, and then everything kind of just came together. And right. then, of course, the punk movement honored, you know, reggae, ska, rocksteady, dub, so much. It was such an important and integral part of the movement that I just, you know, it was a natural fit for me. So it was happening, you know, in London, it was happening full force. And yeah. so the first time I was in London, I was probably 17 or 18 years old, hanging with a bunch of punks in Earl's Court exhibition. <laughs> kicking down kicking down the door at Earl's Court Exhibition Center to to get into a Bowie concert and breaking my foot, you know, stupid shit like that. But right. we had a lot of fun. It was a great scene. And then when I came back and I was living in New York, there was the whole sort of 80s scene that blossomed. In between, then I, I finished up school at um, the University of Massachusetts and was living in Northampton, Mass., and we had a yeah, really robust pump sitting up there. I, I, and I'm I, I, still said, friends with all those folks. We're all over the country and all over the world now, but everybody's still pretty tight. And that says a lot. That was right. a long time ago.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it is, but how, how do you then? We I mean, go from the University of Mass, and you're in Boston. Boston had a, a really vibrant sort of punk scene as well, and it's produced some of the biggest bands in the world. Um, you know, you've got like, in, well, not in the world, but within the scene. So you've got like Freeze, Gangreen, Jerry's SSD. I mean, they they're all notable exceptions came later on. But you know, so how do you move from Mass to New York and end up in the East Village?
1: Well, so I was going to school in Massachusetts, and I wasn't from there. I was from the East Coast, but the logical place to go was New York City, because, um, you know, someone like me who wanted to pursue some form of creativity, and I wasn't sure what at the time, you know, I needed to be surrounded by that kind of vibrancy, and I also needed to be surrounded by like-minded people, and they were hard to find in at that time, to be honest with you like, uh, you know, groups of Punks were few and far between, and the cities was one thing, but in yeah. the burbs and in the smaller towns, it was a whole different story. And it was a time in your life where you looked like you could get the shit beat out of
2: it. And yeah.
1: forget about that. It's everybody can look every which way, and it's fantastic. I'm glad that that door oh, opened. Yeah, I really think it was punk that opened that door. Masses, I do.
0: But, I mean when when I look at the sort of New yorkers like the late 70s new it always seems like an incredibly dangerous vibrant in place think so, it was um you've got like all the all the porno theaters next to you know um the the bus stations and, and the sort of um subway and it just seems terrifying so well yeah how do you navigate that i mean okay. it just
1: <laughs> there, you know, it was part of the joy of New York at the time was was the seediness and the dirtiness and the danger and 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 the alternate lifestyles that you encountered every day, right. and the fact that. That underneath all of that, people related really well to each other in the city, in a gruff city kind of way. And I tell you what you're talking about, 42nd Street, when it was all peep shows and porno shows and, you know, next to like crappy delis and, you know, warehouses and blah, blah, blah. It was yeah. called The Deuce. That's what people called it back then, The Deuce, oh, okay. 40, 42nd Street. And it was so cool. And when Times Square started getting taken over by the M&M store and, you know, the Gap and all that, it completely just destroyed New York and lost its flavor. The East Village was the epitome of like the shithole dirty New York City, Manhattan. (laughs) At the time, all stinky tenement buildings, it was all built on landfill, you know, all buildings were like, the paint was crumbling. You knew you were breathing in asbestos. My building had a bullet hole in the front door <laughs> in the glass, which was always kind of funny until we eventually replaced it. And um, Avenue B, right around the corner for me, was an open-air drug supermarket then. So like literally you'd walk around the corner and people didn't bother going into buildings. They just sat out on the sidewalks screaming what kind of heroin they had or what kind of dope they had or whatever, you know? And it it was crazy. Like it was an open air drug supermarket, very dangerous. I lived across from Tompkins Square Park which eventually got taken over by a whole shelter of super homeless people and there was a big tent city there and then there were riots there. Right across the street, so there was a lot going on, but all of that kind of created a a character of place and time that I don't think that art movement could have risen out of anything else but that.
0: Right. So, no, kind of, kind of. This is fascinating to me. This is just, yeah.
1: Well, it's cool because you know, right next to shooting galleries were art galleries. And so, you know, you had people creating things out of out of despair and craziness and danger and dirt, but also out of like finding the vibrancy and the love and the connectedness that went with that kind of group of people. So one thing a lot of people don't realize about punk brush is, is we, of had of love, we had a lot of love and we had a lot of generosity of spirit. And when we found each other, it was always really cool because you'd recognize, you know, a similar soul. And you'd be like, I know you, even if I've never met you. And hey, what kind of art do you do? And what do you do? And who are you? And, and it was just this kind of commonality of spirit that was really appreciated. And even if you didn't like the person's art, because a lot of it was crap back in the day. i got to say, like a lot of, you know, people were like breaking off dolls' heads and sticking them on a canvas and, you know, stuff like that. And it was fun. It was its own genre, but you respected the fact that they did it, you know, and, and maybe they were trying to make a statement, or maybe they weren't. It didn't matter. It was there, and it was people were creating, and that's what mattered.
0: I mean, it's just you're there. The avenue't of like Max, max's Kansas City, and the, the, the start of the shows at CBT uh, and it's just you're part of this sort of uh, living, I, breathing history. Yeah. You know, and your art contributes to that. Thank so you, uh, looking back, the how does that make you feel knowing that you were part of it? You know, there's Blondie and there's television and there's the talking heads and then there's the advent of New oh, York hardcore the dead boys are there the bad brains and there you are and you're part of this. You, you're right yeah. in the heart of this. So looking back, again, as I say, looking back, how does it feel to know that you were part of essentially the beginning of punk rock?
1: I'm so honored. That's how I feel. I feel like we made a massive contribution to culture. Um, and I think that we were we were real forerunners in in just breaking out in certain ways and in letting people actually express who they were and, and letting people see themselves and look how they want it and dress how they want it and, and And in some ways, not always to the betterment of mankind, behave how they (laughs) wanted. But the bottom line is, most of the people I knew were pretty righteous and they were really about their art and about their creativity and about promoting those kind of things. And to have been a part of that was really exciting. And to, like, be able to have walked into CBGB's and see Joey Ramone there and just walk up to him and say, Joey, I love your music. And him saying, girl, here, I'm buying you a beer and sitting down and having a beer with Joey. And, you know, walking up St. Mark's Place and seeing Joey Ramone there because he lived on Irving Plaza right around the corner. So he was a stable there. He was there running into Mick Jones on St. Mark's Place. I mean, all these people, it was just this hub. You know, Matt Dillon, Jim Jarmusch, Steve Buscemi, his brother Michael. I used to perform with his brother Michael. He had a kind of a comedy thing. Though. Um, and so it was just like this really interesting, eclectic mix of people that really wanted their voices to be heard and wanted people to question not only just what, how we're living and where we were living and why we were there and authority and all of those things, but I actually could re reexamine the way we looked at like i mean face it people were coming out of like a thatchers Britain, which was huh. so oppressive and dull and gray and horrible and any like spark of color coming out of that was like ooh that's exciting you know because it was like the drab its grayest most horrible fucking place to be and uh. one of my yeah. one of my poems in the book is called london town and i think it kind of thumbs up that era, um, you know, and it's just about how nobody had any hope, and there weren't any jobs, and, you know, it was just this awful friggin' time, so something had to give, and I think we were what gave.
0: I mean, you're, you're talking about Thatcher's Britain, because it's Thatcher that devastated the area we live in, because um, she basically shut down all the mines, and so we, we, we you, know, you know, we live in a really world class mining-based culture, um And so there are generations of families who've never been able to find sort of stable employment since, because there's the manufacturing base, the essentially the, the mining base was completely destroyed by Thatcher, who was just like, well, I don't care. You can riot for you, you can riot, and you can do what you want. You can fight back, but nothing's going to change, and nothing does change. And it, it looks like, from what I can gather, it was the same in, in America with with Reagan's eighties. You know, it's just like the rich or prosper prosper, oh, the expense I, of the oh, poor. Yeah. Absolutely, and uh, you know it's just, it's just nice to know that there were people fighting back then, and then seeing that this this. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, the title of your book, yeah. "Time for My Generation to Die," is it literal? Do you believe that we must? You know, I mean, you're. Uh, I, I was assuming still yeah, part of Generation, just yeah, I, I think, generation uh, X. Just before Generation X, do you really yeah. think it's time for your generation to die and successive generations to die so that we can pass on to the next? Or is it just a statement of saying, look, this is what we know. This is what you should know. This is what we're passing on to you. No, I think it's time for
1: my generation to die. <laughs> I really <laughs> do, actually. It's quite simple. I think it's time for us to clear it out. And leave the whole mess and garbage that, unfortunately, um, some of our generation has has um, dealt to other generations okay. in hopes that they can step aside and look and see what the hell's going on in this world and clean it up and clean up all messes. And I'm really sorry <laughs> that we left such a mess. I, and I, I like I, to think I, that the conquistadors among the people that left messes but left some beauty. Um, I, mean, I really, I'm really kind of hear that and and. You know, I'm at the tail end of the baby boomers, but actually, what we are is Generation Jones. And I don't know if you're familiar with Generation Jones, but they say there is a generation from 1960 to 1970. That right. did not adhere to the baby boomer values. They, we were the younger brothers and sisters. We were the ones that got the leftovers, the hand the downs the teachers saying, if you're not like your older sister, you can't write like her. You can't do what your brother did, you know. And yeah. so we were left out. Oh, fuck me. Then what else? <laughs> what else is left? So. <laughs> I always related to a very different generation than baby boomers because right. I was at the tail. I was at the ass end of the baby boomers. And I was like, but I'm a so hippie. I don't want to be a hippie. You know, I'm not interested in that, you know. And I'm right. not interested in the values or what a lot of hippies became. So, uh, um, Rexy, either come here or be quiet. Sorry about that. It's I have a very expressive parent. He really does like oh, to be part of my scene here. Um, <laughs> he's in a lot of my my promo videos, as you will see. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: He's bowing now. Um, anyway, sorry about that. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: um, it, 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 it always seems sort of weird that, um, you know, you... Like, punk rock appears just as you've got, like, the hippies transitioning into into hard rock. And, I mean, they, you know, forgive me for for no, sort of no, the the put no, no, essential no, punk no. rock line, which is I hate the hippies, but the, all the hippies, as far as peace and love, and then became the head of the corporations that have literally destroyed the world.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Never trust a fucking hippie. <laughs> 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 and
0: that's the reason, because they, they, they've they taken it fucked it all up. They and it's have. the hypocrisy of that ideology that I think gives birth this this sort of nihilism yeah, that's inherent in punk rock, even though we have this idea that we can change the world but, uh, based solely uh, on our own endeavour. There is that underlying nihilism, well, what if we just fuck things up the same way as the hippies did? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I just love the idea that somebody is still writing poetry that goes, well fuck the man and fuck the system this is what we should do to look out for ourselves so how do you continue to find the motivation to do what you do
1: okay so um i will write about anything right and everything and i particularly love writing ballads that tell stories so it's never ever hard to find a good story to write about um, you know, some, I, a lot of my most recent poetry, as a matter of fact, some of a bunch of the stuff that appeared in this book, some of that, the stuff in, in time for my generation to die is old from the eighties and from, from that scene and what, and a lot of it's new. And the newer stuff has often come to me because someone said to me, Hey, write a poem about what London was like uh when when you were coming up. You know, write a poem about uh I found this beautiful picture of this smiling Indian girl from the eighteen hundreds and she's a mystery and you know can you why don't you write about that? You know, did that inspire you or you know, hey, you know, there was this uh a, a train that went off the track, you know, up in, in uh hello Rex up in Wisconsin or whatever. It was this terrible train wreck, you know, and it evoked something from like, you know, old Western or 1800s to me. So I'd write something like that. And, you know, moving to the Southwest here has evoked a lot of uh, poetry in me because the landscape's completely different. The vibe is completely different. The music's completely different so I think you know I'm inspired by everything around me and like I said I will write a poem about anything I've had friends say like a, a friend of mine um who's actually in in England said to me yeah you can write a poem about anything he goes okay here you go I wanted you to write a poem about Martha Stewart being in prison and banana bread so like you're on so I ended up writing one of my pieces. is called you know, um, it's about Martha Stewart writing, uh, baking banana bread in the pen and wanting to give it to Snoop, but you know, the guard just won't let her bake that damn bread because she can't have access to an oven. So or nice, uh, I guess that's called paradox in the penitentiary, <laughs> and um, you know, so. Uh, like throw it at me you know I'll write a poem about it and then people have asked me you know specifically hey you know this really touched my soul can you write a poem about this I'm like sure so and then I write revenge poetry too sometimes I write some revenge poetry for people who are you know only if they really deserve it like they had to do something really really bad you know so um you know i do that but um right now also i do a lot of children's books and writing for children so um right now i'm working with my partner on a book eventually we're going to publish we have lots of lizards in our yard that we have trained and hand tamed and so we feed them mealworms that we buy and we stick our hand out there and these crazy wild lizards come running up and eat out of our hands so um you know we're going to do a book about a poetry book about lizards I think, you go for kids oh. and for
0: adults. How do you end up moving to where you moved to from the city? Because I mean, I get the idea that from what you've said, and from reading some of your work, that you are more geared towards sort of urban life than rural life, yet you, you, you've made the sort of rural move.
1: Yeah, so it's an interesting story. I was married for uh, almost 25 years to uh Irish punk from Dublin, and we uh, lived in New York for, gosh, I was in New York okay. for close to 30 years. He came later, so we were in New York for probably about 20 years, and um, he always wanted to come out to the Southwest. We had visited out here, and um, I did a second book on ghost old ghost and mining towns, and um, and uh, that's also, that's another book coming out uh, called Old West. It's a philosophy yeah. poetry sort of a yeah. photo, photograph book. I think that you might enjoy that at some point and that's in the future. Um, so anyways, we'd come out here, we have done this trip and we gone to old mining yeah. and ghost towns and I photographed all in like original sepia photo, uh, sepia film yeah. because I wanted original, like authentic pictures. And I knew I'd do something with it someday.
2: Yeah. And
1: I ended up writing this book But the fact is, we had come out and just fell madly in love with the Southwest. So at the end of our time in New York, um, my partner was diagnosed with blood cancer. And we decided we had to get out here. We had to live some life out here before he, you know, didn't have that opportunity anymore. So we did. And he was here for, he lived for another couple of years after we moved out here. And then he passed away. And here I was. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, I honor his memory through my work as well. And he was—he was an Irish punk, so you know he represented. Um, but so we have this great place, and in the middle of nature, and you know, I, my, I've i slowed down. My vibe has slowed down. I don't want to be in a city anymore. I'd rather be talking to lizards than to people any day.
0: See, I, I think that's—that's come with a lot of punks as we get older. We just sort of don't want to be part of that whole rigmarole anymore. You know, we see that there's no value in being part of that and we need to do our own thing and find our own sort of peace. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely.
0: Because I'm reaching that stage now where I'm thinking, well, I don't want to be part of this anymore. I don't want to be doing something that brings no value to the rest of the world. And I want to do something that even if it doesn't contribute to society as a whole, it contributes to making one person's life better. And I think if we can achieve that, that is it's is, is an end goal worthy of being part of what we've been part of.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I've been really lucky to meet some of my idols, and I always thought the same, you know, that the, yeah. there are people that inspired, like, not just so many people, but inspired new ideas and inspired love and, and inspired so many things. Um, I had the opportunity to meet um, Twitter, for instance, Right. So and I was 16 years old when I met Toots and he played in my hometown and I went backstage because I was 16 and I was fearless and I was like, I want to meet Toots Hibbert. <laughs> so I went backstage and him and the Maytals were there. They were smoking a split rolled out of the Sunday New York Times. I'm not kidding. They took a Sunday New York Times <laughs> and jammed it with like three ounces of the dope and rolled the biggest split you ever saw. So I sat there trying to smoke a split with them, which was a joke because I hardly care, hold the thing, it was so heavy. And, you know, I handed him a rose and he was such a gentleman. lady. I mean, he said, this is such a beautiful rose. You're such a beautiful young lady. And why don't you stay for the second concert on me? He was doing two shows that night. Right. So I stayed for the second concert. And that's the kind of thing you could do back then. You could meet your people. You know, you weren't yeah. like, you know, a Swifty, where, you know, your idol's a billion miles away. and You have no chance. You know, like I met Joe Schrummer twice. I handed Joe Strummer a a bunch of my poetry, backstage once and said, I hope you like this. And he was like, thank you so much. I doubt he ever read it, but he thanked me. Those kind of things made a big difference, you know?
0: I mean, I was fortunate enough to meet Joe once, and it's just like, that's one of the defining moments in life when you meet someone like Joe. I mean, I never got to meet the Ramones, because to me, the Ramones are always the epitome of punk rock rather than like the Sex Pistols, so I saw the Sex Pistols, like a boy band. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like contrived by Mark McClown who ripped off everything from New York Dolls. But that's a, a story. Yes, yes, yes. You uh, bet.
1: <laughs>
0: is punk rock's a New York thing. It's not a London thing. It's, it, it, we, it was just a pay limitation. We grew up in the UK. So how did you find Earth Island and how did, you know, how did you go about compiling Type My Generation to Die? Because you said there's there's new work in there. There's work from the 80s. So how do you find that sort of balance between what you want to include and what you think you should include, and sort of opening a portal to what you're going to do in in the future.
1: That's a really good question. So I looked at all my work. And I looked at the things I had recently created, the things I had created in the past. I was like, I know this fits these fit into some kind of vague categories if I think about it. What are those categories? And so I was like, well, they're obviously by location, some of them, and some of them are by sentiment. So I ended up dividing the book into five sections, Mm -hmm. Western Ballads, U.S. News and World Report, What Price Fame, Tainted Love, and Eastern Ballads. And I found that most of my pieces fit kind of snugly under one of those titles, and, um, so, you know, I vetted a bunch of stuff. I updated some things. Um, I threw away some things never to be, never to, you know, darken my door again because <laughs> I was, oh my God, did I actually write that? out? <laughs> we all have those. And, um, Earth Island books. Well, that was kind of a funny story. I, so I self-published Time for My Generation to Die. It it's taken like a year to really compile and get together. And once I had all the work done. Um, and I was like, I don't know, I'm a terrible marketer. I have no sense of PR. I just wanted to get it out there in the world in case one person read it and liked it and it meant something right. to them and they understood it. And that was kind of my end life. And um then I saw that Earth Island Books um they joined me on Instagram and I was like, What's this? So I looked at David's title and I was like. Oh my God! My book needs to be published by these people. They will get it. They know what I'm doing. And right. not that not that my American publisher didn't, but it was a self published thing. But she would she didn't market it or do any of those things for me because I was paying to just get it out there. So I reached out to David and it said, "Hey, you know, send us your submissions if you think that you know you might be you might be interested." So I sent him my two books and I was like, "Hey, you have to publish my book." I said, you're my publisher. Do you get it? Like, read this and you'll see, like, my stuff fits perfectly in your catalog. And I need somebody in in the UK and in Europe who could do the overseas stuff over there because, you know, my stuff isn't reaching anybody. And that's really my audience is much more over there than here in the web. Right. Um, and um, so... David got back to me a few days earlier. He goes, Hey, you know, I really like some of your stuff. And you know, I think, you know, we could do something and da da da. And then he got back to me the next day. He's like, holy shit, I just read the rest of your book. It's really, really good. And I was like, Oh, thank you. <laughs> so um he's like, Yeah, we can do something with this and, and with your other book and you know, with future books and and I'd never met a Brit that was so enthusiastic. I got to tell you, I was floored, and I, I, was like, "This is my man. This is my guy," because he, he gets what I want to do here. And he, and I said, I was just looking for a publisher that I could resonate with. I don't right. want to po- put, you know, I'm not, and look, and I sent him this email and I was, and it was like, why did a coyote be throwing money up in the air saying, rich, rich, we're going to be rich, rich, rich. And I was like, <laughs> my poetry is going to make us rich, 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 you know, because like poetry will always make people rich, right? Oh, absolutely.
0: Like, so, same as, same as, you know, punk rock infused <laughs> exactly. and maybe.
1: Exactly.
0: I'm a living testament to that. So, yeah. <laughs>
1: exactly. You know, my partner's a musician and he's a, a professional musician. I said, ha! I got one up on you. You think you got it bad? I'm a poet. <laughs> so um, anyways, I was just delighted that David was interested in taking it on and distributing it and trying to get some reviews and get a little life for it. Um, and that's kind of where we're at. And, you know, I'm just doing interviews for it and, and, and suffer, um to try to get the word out. And like I said, if it inspired or delights a couple of people, I'm delighted because then, you know, my rewards are out there and they've checked someone. And that's my motivation. I don't I don't give a shit about, you know, being rich and famous and this and that, because obviously I picked the wrong profession for that, didn't I? But um I can tell you I love John Cooper Clark and he's done well. You know, I love Patty Smith, don't like her poetry, but I do like her as an icon, you know. And love, John Cooper's
0: music costs So yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> and you know, John Cooper Clark's another one. Like he's just amazing to me. And I was lucky enough to meet him backstage at a at a gig in New York where I was when I was going to uni up there. And um he was such a sweetheart. Whoops, sorry, my bird has decided to run across my keyboard. Um, he's such a sweetheart, and I went backstage to meet him again, you can go backstage to meet your heroes, right? Anytime you wanted. And uh, the first thing he said to me was like, how the hell did you understand a word I was saying? He has such a thick New Yorkshire accent, but I had lived in New York. So I, I understood what he was saying. So I told him that. And he's like, and where are you from? I said, oh, I'm from the New York. And he's like, oh my God. And he's like, have you ever been to CBGB's world? And I said, Oh, hell yeah. It's like, you got to ask the cockroaches to move over so you can take a seat there. And he busted out laughing. He thought that was the funniest thing he had ever heard. And I didn't even think it was that funny. But he laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. And then he invited me and my friend Maggie out for a drink. But we couldn't go for some stupid-ass reason. Like, there going a reason good enough to not go drinking with Clark. But there you have it. Um, so, you know, it was just, yeah, gosh, you know, I... It just makes me so happy when people like that can see me. And he really is the voice of of that generation of poets, and he's a good one too. And the thing I love about him, which I try to infuse in my own poetry, is his sense of humour, having a sense of humour about himself.
0: Well, that's, I mean, I, one of the things that I will say about your poetry is that I don't like poetry very much, but I like what you do. So, um that just stands a testament to what you do, I think, as well. <clears throat> from my point.
1: Thank you. Thank you so, so much.
0: I guess we're coming to the end of our time. Um, so Edie, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And hopefully at some point we'll cross paths properly. As uh where it's sort of spiritual or spiritual writers on the same path with Earth Island. So I think
1: so, and I, I really am looking forward to to buying and reading your books. I was checking them out, and boy, some they sound incredible. I'm really excited about those too. Well, so, uh,
0: thanks. You that. I'll get David to send them to you. So. Yeah,
1: that that would be fantastic. I'm really psyched. But either way, I'll buy them. I'll, I'll support you because they really look cool. And, uh, you know, you can get Time for My Generation to Die, at Earth Island Books by E.D. Evans. And, um, you know, always open to talking or chatting with anybody if you're curious to know more about my process or my life or anything in general. You know, I, I, I like to talk. So there you go. And I like to talk to you, Tim. This is lovely. <laughs> I'm so appreciative.
0: It
1: has been an absolute
0: pleasure. And I hope we can
1: do it again
0: soon. Me too. Take good care of yourself. Okay. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. And that was Edie Evans. Uh, Next up, we have Marla Watson, who was a photojournalist during the formative years of the LA punk scene between 1981 and 1984. She captured a vibrant moment in history through her photographs. And Earth Island just published a book called My Punk Rock Life, which documents this period of time. Um, and includes a lot of Marla's more incredible photographs, and it is a wonderful testament to a time in a lot of our lives that we wish we'd been in. Uh, you know, every punk rocker wishes they'd been in L.A. between 1980 and 84. Marla was there, she captured the scene in all of its glory, and it's all included in my her latest book, My Punk Rock Life. Um, I thoroughly recommend you check it out, and because that... I thought I'd catch up with Marla and talk to her all about it. And so without further ado, here is Marla Watson. How are you? I'm good. How are you?
3: Oh, just fine.
0: <clears throat> so your book, My Life in Punk Rock. My in punk no, rock.
3: My Punk Rock Life.
0: My Punk Rock Life, sorry. I <laughs> All over the place There's it's Friday. Um, wow, that's all I can say. Um, I don't know if you've read our review of it, but it kind of... I did. Um Summed up everything we. Th- <laughs> I thought that it was just an absolute pleasure to read. So, how how did it take 40 years for this book to come out?
3: Oh, um, well, uh, I, I didn't have the skills to to put a book out forty years. First of all, I was a teenager, so, <laughs> well, yeah. um, and then. I didn't have the skills or technology to put it out and I, I'm glad that I waited till there was technology because it seems like the right time.
0: Right. So was it something that was on your mind for a long time you knowing that you had this collection of photographs this this massive time capsule from from the scene history was it something you always intended to do or was it something you thought about later on you know did you did you always think at some point, I'm going to have to compile all these photos into a book.
3: Yeah, I did. I've been talking about it for like thirty years. <laughs> okay. I had the title. I've had the title for like thirty years, but you know, you you have to work. You have a You're kid. Right. You know all the things life goes. You know now I'm an empty nester. Or my husband and I are empty nesters, and I have a full time job, but then you know covid happened so i had the evenings and weekends cuz there's nothing to do and i didn't want to watch tv so i started working on the book
0: uh, you, i mean like, i know the anti nesta thing my daughters off a of university now you know um much as the dog sort of is a substitute for company you you can't you know the, the idea that your your children are away off living their own lives is kind of difficult after they've been part of your life for so long so i i, I can appreciate where you're coming from With that.
3: (laughs) Mine's been away for a long time. So it's. It's it's
0: easier. (laughs) (laughs) It does does get easier then. Yeah. Okay.
3: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Especially when they're working and they have their own life. And mine moved to Los Angeles. So it was perfect. I mean, she's here now visiting, but.
0: um... Well, so. Way, way back. When when you started taking photographs, did you find punk rock? Did punk rock find you? Because it's always a thing. Was it something you discovered, or or did punk rock essentially find you and draw you into its embrace?
3: Well, punk rock saved me. Okay, but um, and I had a friend show take me. Like I started to listen to that kind of like new wave music and stuff in high school. Someone started introducing me to punk and then it took a while for me to we go to a few shows but it took a while for me to get to go to shows regularly um but yeah it definitely saved me from being this smart geeky or what other people could uh, perceived as geeky uh girl with you know who liked to read books and stuff and and uh that was not cool back in the 1970, late 70s early 1980 not you. cool at all yeah um and we went to a school high school where uh there were really really rich kids like heirs to fortunes this is a public high school too heirs to fortunes that lived up in the hills and then as you got to the flatlands is like there was a uh like a middle class and then there was a a, a low you know a a poorer neighborhood, so it was a real mix of people in the school, but uh definitely the i w did not fit into any groups um within my school because you know punk was weird, and right. I was weird to them so so yeah, when I found punk, I found kindred spirits, so that was nice. I felt like I found a place that I belonged
0: right, i mean one things in your book is said that, that you with um, a friend of yours at the time Who started the zine, So that's the original reason you started taking photographs Of yeah. The band So was photography always a part of your life Before punk rock Or was it something you discovered No, thanks to punk rock? no.
3: Well I always I used to go to garage sales with my dad And I'd buy old cameras Like that right. old brownie You know with the Where you look and it's upside down Uh huh and, um I used to buy those and stuff but that wasn't like that was interesting to me to take take pictures with those but I didn't I had I think I got a 35 millimeter camera when I was probably about 18 17 or 18 I met someone that had one and it looked pretty cool and I and this person encouraged me to to uh to get one and so I got one but that was never that it was never for going to shows and taking pictures that it, I just had it and I was trying, you know, going to learn photography. And then in college I did, so.
0: Okay, so it sort sort of. became a sort of lifelong passion of yours, photography. From... No. No, okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, I have no lifelong passions, to be honest with you. Um, uh, No, I mean, I did it for like, I'd say I was really into it until I moved up here to Portland, which was in 1991. Right, and then I still had a camera and everything, and I still took pictures, but not it. I didn't take it to shows or anything. So that part of my life, like taking photographs of bands and shows, that was really in my younger years in the eighties. And right. as I got older, I just I had other interests. So um, at that point, I was writing a lot. So I did a lot more writing than I did photography. And then like- I've. I've had so many different interests and things uh throughout my entire life uh that I that I move along from. And it's like I do something kind of I don't know, if I have ADD or not, but I do something and then for a few years and I perfect it, or I get to a point where I'm kind of bored with it and then I find yeah. a new thing, artistic thing, and do that
0: it's it's all the, through my life. Because the photographs of the book are incredible. I mean when you when, you, when you. you're when you open the front page open the cover, there's that incredible photograph of Jay Bentley and Doyle from The Misfits. And having met them later on in their lives, um, I mean I appreciate how big both of these guys are. So and they're both well, they're not like squaring off against each other, there is a sort of attitude there where you know you, you can pick up the sort of vibe between them, and automatically think. This is gonna this book's gonna be incredible. Just from that photograph, because you know you. what you're plunging into. It gives you a sense of time and place, you know.
3: Yeah, well that's what I wanted. When I was taking photos, I was a total amateur. I <laughs> I had no skill whatsoever, except that I was taking some photojournalism classes in college, but and I was on on the school paper and stuff. But um, at that point, like, I knew when I was taking pictures that this was something unusual. I was well aware that what was going on was not in the normal. It come from a generation where you went to the big rock concerts and you got your lighter out and, you know, And it was no closeness with the band at all, like no interaction. And then you get into punk rock and that's all it is, is interaction. Anybody can go on the stage if they want. Anybody can, you know, it was, it it was completely different than what I grew up with, with the stadium rock. And then, so doing this, I knew it was different. And I knew, I used to think this is like our Woodstock, um, only ours is better. <laughs> but that had way better music um oh, yeah. and way and I, I you know if I had never have to roll around in mud I'll be okay <laughs> oh I camp in mud I'll be all right um but ours I knew that this was something different and I knew that this was something special I'm not I was not unaware of that and so um I knew that I was I always approached it that I was taking that these pictures were historical in a way I mean when you're in the present you don't think of the future where it'd be historical but I I did I didn't give uh give away a lot of photos to uh magazines and stuff to use a little bit but not a lot a lot of photographers worked for magazines and and stuff and that's how that was an avenue for their photography. And I didn't. I, first of all, I had no confidence in my photos because I was an amateur. And I'm standing on the stage right behind in front of, because he always let me stand in front of him, the great Ed Culver. He's like right there with me. And then on the other side is Alison Braun, who is Mouse. And she's a great photographer. And she was only 14. She's a great photographer and she's shooting for Flipside and Ed's shooting for. Flip side and every record cover, you know, from every L.A. hardcore band. And here's little old me that comes up there with a Pentax K-1000. It doesn't, you know, uh, and I start taking pictures. And uh, I didn't think I did. I mean, you've been standing like Ed's so tall. Ed is tall, 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 man. And I'm like five foot five. So he would always let me kind of stand in front of him because he shoot over my head. And so and we're always by each other. And, um, yeah, you know, when you see that, and then Glenn Friedman, Glenn E. Friedman was always across the sta- stage or near us. So here are these people that are, that I, like, almost revere, you wow. know, and, and there's little old me, this 19-year-old with the camera. And, but, so I didn't think much. When I took them, I, they were kind of for me, but I didn't have the confidence they were good enough. That anyone else would want to see them. And so I just kept them. I didn't think, you know, I see what Ed does and it's just fantastically beautiful. I mean, his work is just amazing. And, um, and although, you know, I I didn't do a ton of record covers, I didn't, or record, you know, pictures in records or whatever. And I I just didn't, I was too scared. I had loads. Just low self esteem, and I was too scared to do all that stuff. So I just didn't. I just kind of kept it to myself and put it away. And I would go to school and I would develop it. And if I had a really cool picture, I would give it to the band. That was my my thing. So, but that then that's how the minor threat thing photo came about. That's on their Out of Step album, right? I had a cool. I had taken a cool picture, and then saw saw Jeff like the next night or night after I gone to school, developed it in a dark room where it was free and, uh, and then gave it to him. And that's how that happened. But that's what I would do. Like if I had a cool picture of somebody that I thought they might like, and I knew them, I'd give it to them, but I was really shy too. So um, I'm surprised I actually stepped on a stage on the stage. So I'm surprised I was that shy, but uh, now I'm not, but I was then.
0: <laughs> well, I think that's, that's part of youth, though, isn't it? You, you, know, you, you never know what's coming next, so you're always kind of afraid to put yourself out there in, in, in some contexts. Um, but, I mean, I know, I know sort of Ed Carver's work. I know Glenn Friedman's work, and yours stands up. It really does. I mean, it's not – Well, thank you I very mis- much. Stylistically, it, it's different, but it captures the same uh-huh. sort of raw energy that they work did as well. You know I mean? Thank you. Your photographs of bad religion are astounding. Seeing you know these kids doing what they were doing then and knowing them now, yes, it's it's remarkable. So, so out of all the bands you photographed at the time, which were which were the ones that you felt the most connected to? Because everybody has a connection with this band or with that band. And I guess Channel Three, Channel Three, Mike's band.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. we're still friends. Okay. In fact, I just got Mike's book. He said a book out, I'll plug it for him. Yeah. It's called Miles Per Gallon. And it, I just received it yesterday. And I'm excited because we're going on vacation tomorrow. And that's my first read that I'm going to bring with me on vacation is his book. I want to read that. And he wrote the foreword for my book. So, right. um, but we, yeah, I took, I think I took the most pictures of them of any other band.
0: Just because my copy of that book's on its way through the post notes. I know the publisher. Uh... Stephen and DeWolf. yeah. So yeah. that's a book I really, really want to read. Channel Three are one of those bands that are hideously underrated and should have been a lot bigger than they actually were and are. Uh-huh. I think. Uh huh. So apart from Channel Three, because I mean, you know, w- w- with the distance where we are, that the bands I grew up sort of rapidly consuming—Bad Religion, you know, Black Flag, The Circle jerks around uh, the middle class sort of those bands from LA that, that, that made that sort of initial mark on the scene. And then, so which of those bands did you know at the time or did you feel at the time were going to break out and become bigger than they were? Or did you think that LA was just always going to be a, a, a sort of closeted sort of... Punk I rock always,
3: thing? my friend and I always had a joke that someday in the future... We'd get in an elevator, and we'd hear Holiday in Cambodia, like as Muzak.
0: Right. Like,
3: that was our joke. And then I go to the supermarket now, and I hear Susie and the Banshees or The Cure or Green Day. And I'm like, well, it's not Holiday in Cambodia, but
0: you know, <laughs> it's, it's close not, enough. It's yeah.
3: a lot closer than it used to be. It's not Bur- Bur- Bacharach anymore. So, you know.
0: Actually, one of the things we always heard about, the LAC. I mean, I I'm, came along to punk rock later. I mean, I'm like 86, 87. So it was always that LA was dominated by gang culture. It was always, that early seems a really dangerous place to be. So was it as dangerous as sort of punk rock mythology made it out to be?
3: Well, there were gangs. That, right. That's for sure. But I never had a problem. With the punk gangs, you No, know what? First of all, I was female. Right. So I would have less problems with the punk gangs than, than if I was a male. And I mean, one of our group that we hung around with in North Hollywood, um, our friends were that, that was this gang called FFF fight for freedom, which started as a band and then they became a gang or they were called a gang. Um, I guess they, they graffitied and I guess they caused trouble and, you know, it was, and then, but I was also, because I had a camera, I had the privilege of knowing other people in the other groups or gangs, like the suicidals and the the the, the, uh, the family, which was the Circle One group. Right. Uh, and I knew them and because I took photos of them, like John Circle One and I were good friends. And so there was never a problem with me going between groups. It, it, I didn't have a problem. I was once with this friend of mine, Greg, who was in FFF and um, and we were wa- in Hollywood and we were walking to the anti-club and Greg was probably drunk, uh, it would be normal. I, I'm not much of a person, a drinker. And we're walking down this neighborhood and we see one of the lads and he sees Greg and they start mouthing off to each other. And then they get in a big fight, like, on someone's lawn. And I'm just standing there, like, waiting for this fight to be over to move along. But that's because they were, like, two gang members. But I wasn't. So, I mean, I was with him, but I wasn't in a gang. I mean, right. it was really – girls Girls weren't really allowed. Like, it was the really like the He-Man Woman Haters Club. Like, they – that was all dudes like that stuff. Maybe there was some girls on the peripheral or whatever, but there wasn't a girl, a bunch of girls going, let's start a gang, You know, let's go beat the crap out of other people. That's the first of all, there wasn't enough of us. And secondly, that's just not how we rolled. So, right. you know, we were there to see the bands and we were there to, There was a huge social scene. So that's what, you know, we were there to do. And some of us had jobs like photography or producing records or, magazines or singing in bands or you know all the things the women did at that time but um you know I don't I'm sure there were a couple of girls in some gangs but really it was it was all teenage guys
0: oh so we got- not us oh, okay. so, can we-
3: I can't hear you hold on a sec hold on I can't for whatever reason I can't hear you
0: where do I go to the mic there so, I mean, we, we well, always had about uh, like the Olympic Auditorium and, and Okie Dogs. And the Olympic Auditorium is always, well, people get stabbed if you want to see shows in the Olympic Auditorium. And I'm thinking, well, if people get stabbed there, why were there always shows there? You know, I mean, some of these things to be blown out of all proportion. But well, then... yeah, because
3: it's all legendary. It's all yeah. legend. Right. Yeah. Like, people, so. My first the first thing is the worst enemy of punks was not the other punks, was not the gangs, was the cops. So if you really wanted to get hurt, you would be hurt. If you really got hurt, you're gonna get hurt by a cop. Mm. As they they if like a band like TSOL or Black Flag were playing, they were always around. And they would for you know, go in formation and one would go in and said the fire marshal shutting down uh the building it's oversold heard that all the time get the people out and then come out and then you this line lines of militarized police would come chasing you with their clubs and um and their big flashlights and uh you know women the girls a lot of the girls ran slower than the guys so they a lot of girls got hit um they didn't care the cops didn't care it was like it, it, was, it was really bad. It was like we were a bunch of teenagers and we were second-class citizens to them. And um, they really had no regard for us at all. We were weird. Mm-hmm. And so, and of course, there was always some fucking idiots that were throwing bottles at the cops or setting, like, I remember it was Christmas time and there was some big riot in Hollywood. And it was after Christmas. And some of the punks went and got the the old, people put their Christmas trees out by the garbage and on the curb and people, they went and got some of the Christmas trees and put them in the middle of Hollywood Boulevard and set them on fire. Um, that, you know, that might not have been the smartest move in front of a, you know, riot squad, but they certainly, LAPD were brutal, just absolutely brutal. So number one enemy of the cops, of the punks in L.A. was the cops. Mm I would be more worried about them. Sometimes shows, you know, uh, neighbors didn't really like punks. We were, you know, you look at it now and you see people with green hair or mohawks or whatever, that whatever their thing is, and you don't, it doesn't mean anything. You're like, oh, normal person, you know, here's this guy with a a sleeve working at my, you know, local market. And, And, but back then, that, no, that just was not normal at all. So kids got kicked out of school for having mohawks. They wouldn't let us in. They would if you had colored hair, they would not let you into Disneyland because they thought people would mistake you for a character. So a lot of punks, LA punks, they love Disneyland. Um, everyone loves Disneyland. We would go like to Disneyland and our we friends with colored hair, they wouldn't let them in and or mohawks. And so um it was really to be a punk was was really frowned upon by society. It was bad, 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 bad to them. Right. It was not bad to be a punk, but long story. Anyway, so our a lot of our greatest clubs, like Godzilla's, which was not far from where I live, um, which had like the railroad tracks running beh- in front of it or behind it, I can't remember, that... That was a fantastic punk club. I mean, probably the best punk club of that time. And it got closed down because the neighbors complained about the punks being there. Um, And so we couldn't be there. So the the promoters within the scene had to move the gigs farther and farther and farther out to neighborhoods that maybe were a little less um, safe than and so as they moved to these other neighborhoods the sa- our safety was we had some uh, run-ins with gangs uh, other gangs that were pretty hardcore gangs so uh like that so that was a problem dealing with them i'm not talking about punk gangs either um but so that was a problem at some shows and then uh and that was dangerous and you know, I guess people got, I don't know anyone who got stabbed, but there's always rumors of people getting stabbed. Um, uh, you know, I think, I don't know, maybe, I don't, I mean, I, I wouldn't doubt it. I know that like the FFF guys, that years after I was out of the scene, they, there was a stabbing um, and I knew it got really violent. Towards like 84, 85 It started to get super violent And that's when I left It was too violent for me And um, and I liked a good amount of violence But not like that And uh, it's like everyone thought They were in a clockwork orange or a droog or something It was very violent And um, and then so uh, um, I know then it That there might have been stabbings And that kind of stuff At that point and I don't know before that because I I didn't witness it. I never I went to Okie Dogs. I never felt unsafe.
1: Right. I went to
3: the Olympic t- Auditorium. I never felt unsafe. Um. So there were other places that I felt unsafe, but not at those two places.
0: So I mean, was Okie Dogs like the place where everybody gathered? As, as, yeah, like that. So yeah. Did you, did, yeah. Was was, yeah. was there a reason why? I'm just. It's always puzzling. Me. Why Why? This hot dog restaurant, essentially this, 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 this hot dog stand restaurant, became like. Do you know so, what
3: an okay Dog is? No. Okay, I'm going to explain it to you. Your people are going to, in England, are going to be like, what? Anyway, it's a tortilla, and they put two hot dogs in the middle of it, and right. then they put chili and cheese. Oh, and then they put in pastrami, and they roll it up like a burrito. And it's huge, and it's called an okey dog. <laughs>
0: um,
3: if you ate that at my age now, you'd probably have a heart attack after you <laughs> ate it, but or vomit. But that's what an okey dog was. Most of, they had really good chili cheese fries, so that's what we would have. But anyway, so everyone would hang out at Okie dogs, right? And it was just kind of a gathering place. It was in a, it was in Hollywood, and we were in a lot of shows were in Hollywood, and so. Um People came to Hollywood a lot, and so that was just sort of a place that people would go after a show and Remember, there's shows going on all over the place There's not just like one show you could go to a show every night of the week back then and see a punk band so but right on the so after the show you'd gather, and that's where people would come with their flyers because we didn't have cell phones or internet or anything right. And so people would show up with their flyers and, oh, my band's playing next week. My band's playing here. My band's playing here. And it was a good place for bands to network right. um, at these things and talk to people and meet people. And, yeah, you just kind of hang out with your friends and meet other people and laugh and just, you know, stupid. T- it's a team. We were teenagers. It's like, that's what teenagers do. Don't they, they hang out and do stupid stuff? Um, at least we had punk rock and we were not getting pregnant. You
0: know? <laughs> well,
3: there is that. Yeah, we had so- that. You know, we at least we had something to do. But um, <laughs> no offense to teenage pregnancies, but that was just not on our agenda. Not on my agenda, anyway. But uh, you know, I mean, this was our city kids. We were in the city, and Okie Dogs was just the place. It came the place before I was into it, and and that's where we went, and it was fun. It was really fun to hang out there after a show. And so, see I mean, what
0: was going on. I mean, you you mentioned that you left the scene like eighty four. Cut 85. that
3: teenage pregnant out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to I offend mean, anybody that had a baby. Uh, you you
0: won't, absolutely, you won't, because everybody, everybody <laughs> gets the context. It's absolutely fine. So, um, you mentioned you left the scene in, in eighty four eighty five. Was that a conscious decision, or was it because of the way the scene was evolving, or because you didn't it like? It was way, because of the, the. Of, um, the violence right so and you...
3: also i was ev- i was evolving
0: okay
3: i was evolving personally my musical taste although i love punk rock i always love punk rock i listen to it all the time my musical taste in the 80s you know the 80s were an amazing time for music and from punk rock all the way through. There was so much going on in music that was so different and interesting. And so I opened, kind of opened up to beyond punk and um, started to like other bands and things. So uh, I I went from punk, I really got into Psychobilly. I always loved the Cramps and the Meteors. And yeah. then I got into Psychobilly, which I really, I, I still love Psychobilly too. Like they're my top two. And okay. then, you know, from after Psychobilly, I ended up being taken to some goth clubs and then like hanging out with them uh, at goth clubs. I ended up going to DJing at one called the Zombie Zoo in the late 80s. And um, and the owner had a really good sense of humor. And I, I can't stand people who take themselves too seriously. It drives me crazy. But <laughs> so he had a good sense of humor. And I ended up, he gave me a DJing gig there. so. I would play a mixture of like, I'd have like the virgin prunes followed by like the dead Kennedy's, you know, followed by tones on tail. And then, you know, I'd mix in little punk with it sometimes. And it would kind of piss off the goths. but there were a lot of people that at that point had transitioned, had been punks and had moved to goth that still yeah. liked punk music. So there was a lot of people that, um, kind of dug that, but there was also like the really serious goth that only wanted to hear, uh, what they considered goth music and for them they could go to the scream club or help help their skelter because they took their goth really seriously but um i that was not me or the owner of zombie zoo we it was we had a, it was fun that it was fun and we had fun with it and we had a he made a magazine called zombie zoo magazine and i also wrote i wrote a lot and i oh. and i and i was a photographer, but, um, uh, anyway, so he had this magazine, and so he and he has a he's a great sense of humor. So he um uh, one one issue I did and it was a Mother's Day issue, and I did an article on I don't know if you know the band Haunted Garage, but uh, yes. the singer Ricky Flyswatter. I did a, 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 a an interview with his mother, and right. took pictures in her apartment with him with his um, props and everything. And then I did for Mother's Day one issue, and then another issue. We took the band Celebrity Skin, and uh, I I did a photo shoot with them, and then we made cutout dolls uh, for the magazine. So we no, we weren't taking ourselves very seriously, and but it, that's what I like. So so that's how I progressed through music, and um, and I still like all all those forms of music. I prefer. The energy of a punk show or to, or a psychobilly show right. uh, to this day. Like, you know, I'll go to any of those.
0: I mean, you, you should mention Juki Ficewater. He's the dude who did. I, mean, I know the song the Green Man of Wanted Garage. Garage used to. And then, because the, Juk, wasn't Juki Little Fies Green Fieswell Man. In? Um, so not, must die. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Michael Sunny.
0: Right. I managed
3: so, them for a little while. Okay. Just a little while. We did a tour to San Francisco. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, I, like I said, I can't stick with one thing very long. So, <laughs> I moved along. I managed a couple bands. I threw myself in there wherever I could. I was also working full time. Um, I never stopped working full time. And uh, and so, I kind of, you know, I by day, I go to work and look relatively normal and then by night I go out to clubs. So I mean I could afford to go to clubs because I worked full time. So right. you know if I wanted something I didn't have a trust fund. So I had to go earn the money to be able to do it. So
0: so one question I wanted to ask you about the book. How did it feel to finally have it in your hands when it's finished? Surreal.
3: It's still surreal. Um it, it's 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 weird. Right. It's I don't I don't know how to put it. I don't. It's I don't know how to put the feeling into words. Okay. But, <laughs> so- but besides saying it's surreal, I trip out. Like I look at it and I go, "I did this." Like the other day, I I swear to you, I'm not kidding you. Um, I was scanning. Someone wanted some black flag photos for a a magazine article. That they were a fancy an article they were doing, so I was like, let me rescan them because I got a brand new fancy scanner and I love it. And so I was rescanning them and I was looking at these photos and I was like, I was a kid. I took these as a kid, and I was like, it just like hit me like a ton of bricks. I always knew I took it as a kid. I'm not, you know, I don't didn't lose my memory, but, um, but I just at that like just just the other day, I was like, I was a kid what other kids go out and do that like i was a kid um and i'm not trying to i'm no. i don't want i'm not trying to brag but i'm like when you think about a teenager 18 and 19 or even a 20 year old and you think about like your kids and stuff going to college but then like you don't expect them to do something like that i mean no one thought about it it didn't give it a second thought back then but then you think about i did this so young like you know, it's like that's just weird. It's just it's strange to me that something I did as a teenager has so much impact on twenty twenty three, and I did it in like nineteen eighty
0: two. So, so is there anything else you'd like to add, Marla? I mean, like a parting comment? I will tell everybody they should buy this book. <laughs> it, it is thank you, incredible. So, is there anything you you like to add? As, as a final word, you, 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 a parting comment for the folks on Mass Moving Land?
3: Uh, thank you. If you buy the book. I appreciate it. And thank you for the nice, I mean, I've gotten some really wonderful reviews that actually have brought tears to my eyes and I'm not a crier. Um, that my heart has, oh, this is going to sound so goofy, but my heart has, well, I mean, it has. It's like it's just kind of like the greatest feeling that it's like standing in front of an audience and getting applause. Exactly. That's what it is. It's that feeling you made something and people like it. And you're like, Whoa, what, how could this ever be? And I thank all those people who bought my book, will buy my book, great Christmas gift. Um, and and that, that have written to me and told me how much they like it, like that to me, or written a review or held a picture of it up on their Facebook or Instagram. Like, I got this book, it means the world to me, and it does not go unnoticed.
0: Marla, I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time, and the praise is justified because it is an incredible book. And I just want to thank, thank you. you for it. So thank you for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure, and hopefully we can do it again. Yeah, you too. When you release your next book. Say that again. When you release your next book, we'll do it again because there should be a next book, whether it's written or it's photographs or whatever. There has to be another book because this- I
3: have an idea. So give me a couple of
0: years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you for your time, Mal. It's been an absolute thank pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right. Bye. That was Marla Watson talking about her new book, My Punk Rock Life. Um, And lastly, but not leastly, I recently got to speak to Ella Wright, the director of JFK One Day in America, a new series that's about to air on National Geographic. Um... This was a tough interview for me, mainly because I watched the documentary beforehand and it absolutely broke my heart and in th- more than 30 years of interviewing people, this is the only interview in which I've lost my composure in a good way because I was so upset from watching the documentary um, and I think that shows in the interview, um, so I thought I'd present it completely uncut just to show how moving the documentary is and what an incredible job Ella and her team did on making JFK One Day in America and I cannot 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 stress enough how much you need to watch this documentary i think it's uh, airing in november on national geographic so check your listings and whatever you do make sure you watch it because it's a powerful historical document to a day that really did change the world anyway here's ella wright and this is what she had to say about her documentary jfk one day in america Okay, I'm going to record this from here, Tim, okay? I'll send okay, it. Mark, could you send the audio through to me afterwards? Right afterwards. Perfect. Okay, You take Brilliant. it away, guys. So, yeah, I mean, why did you want to make this documentary? What what, what inspired you to, to make One Day in America?
2: Um, so I'd actually worked on um previous series, One Day in America, um, about 9-11. Um, and in that series, we'd used um, kind of a very sort of focused range of ingredients. So we decided to kind of explore that day, not in terms of the politics or, or the, the kind of bigger picture, but very forensically using archive, immersive archive, and uh firsthand testimony from the survivors. Right. Um, and um, you know, what what we found it was like an incredibly emotional series and it felt quite different, I think, to to many other um uh series that were out there. And um, so Nat Geo sort of um, came to us with this idea of um, JFK, the right. assassination. And it, it felt like another, as you say, really defining moment in history that we could apply this same technique to. Because we sort of, I mean, sort of when researching it, I've been watching these documentaries, and a lot of them focused on the conspiracy and took quite an analytical approach um, to, you know, the geopolitics or, um, you know that sort of thing, rather than kind of an experiential approach. So the, we, the way we sort of decided to do it was using these two ingredients and sort of really putting the viewer back in that that moment in in history. We wanted to feel like time travel, so that people felt like they got a sense of what it would would have been like to to be there and sort of experience these events emotionally.
0: Because it's it's well, one no, of so those shows that gets you. You just go whoa. You know it is it's yeah um, it's hideously upsetting to uh, sorry, see a day that changed the world forever from the ground,
2: yeah, absolutely, I mean, um, I guess we were sort of so um we didn't really know um yeah. how we'd approach the interviews i guess at, at first um we knew that there was only sort of a handful of survivors there who kind of had, had witnessed those events right um yeah. so um you know we, it was really important for us to kind of get them on board and we knew that those people would be sort of in their late 80s and 90s so we weren't sure kind of how that process would work <laughs> or whether <laughs> you know they would be able to recall these events in like a huge amount of detail or um but I remember it was sort of a year ago now we were in Dallas filming I think we knew pretty much straight away that we were on something really special um because I think the fact that people were sort of older and you know they had the fact that they were kind of towards the end of their lives and their minds and the 60th anniversary meant that like you know but there was an intensity there to these interviews so people you know they really, we felt really privileged because they they did sort of really open themselves up um, and the interviews were incredibly emotional and it was so clear that people still felt this incredible emotional connection to what had happened to them that weekend, that it continued to influence their lives. And we did get this incredibly vivid sort of visceral testimony um, that that leaves a real impact, I think, and I think it's stronger because, you, you know, these people are older um, and sort of are, you know, they understand this might be the last, you know, one of the last times that they have to sort of tell their story.
0: So did it? Did the interviews change the way you thought about that day? And sort of, because there's a million different conspiracies about who killed JFK and why. And we're never going to know the truth. No matter which way we look, uh, was it Lee Harvey Oswald more likely to involved? But, you know, did it change the way you thought about the way the narrative of the day unfolded it in the, you know, it doesn't matter who did what the outcome was always going to be the same.
2: Yeah. As I say, I mean, so we weren't really focusing on the conspiracy. I mean, emotion sort of our, our kind of center of gravity. So we, we kind of wanted to create a kind of, rather than focusing on conspiracy, it's almost like we wanted to create a kind of tapestry of experience. So, you know, experiencing that event from loads of different perspectives. So, you know, from the bodyguards who are with JFK to, you know, the guy who worked with Oswald, um, to the person you lived with, um, you know, Marina. Um, to you know, the first female journalist, sort of on the, on the third floor. Um, so we wanted to kind of, rather than, I suppose, rather than, um, you know, focusing on the conspiracy, it was more like we want yeah. to create, wanted to create a kind of bigger picture, you know, give you a sense of like how these events kind of played out. Right, how,
0: that involved, how involved it unfolded and involved on the ground in, exactly. in real time, and that's that's the thing. This. this I guess most touched about it uh, because it evolves in real time.
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I think it's one of those, it's one of the first sort of rolling news events, I think. We were so um, fortunate that, like, almost every sort of twist and turn of the story actually was captured on camera. So when, you know, from the moment that uh, Jackie and JFK sort of touched down in Dallas you know, there are hundreds of cameras there, like both amateur and, and news people. Right. And then, you know, it's like every single moment of the story really unfolds on camera, you know, from the search of the book depository to Oswald being brought in to like Oswald's murder kind of playing out um, on camera. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, it, it's sort of, it's one of those defining sort of media stories as well, I guess. Um uh, but, yeah, it was amazing to see, to sort of have that sort of wealth of material, really. And it was sort of, for us, it was more like we don't want to use this like wallpaper. We want to kind of create narrative scenes from that material and kind of put the viewer kind of really in in that moment.
0: Right, but as a historical sort of oversight of the day, it's, it's incredible. It's just, you don't get that sort of information from the news. Oh, sorry book it's it's just so moving it's just thank you hits you in the chest and you're like oh
2: oh thank you so much um yeah I mean that was sort of I mean our aim really was to kind of to to kind of really capture the emotions of that day um and so we and we wanted that to sort of work on different levels so you know in terms of like what JFK meant for America um uh, but also, you know, him him as a man, a husband and a father, and, and the tragedy that unfolded for the family and Jackie. Um, you know, I think her story was one of the things that really stood out for me. And I was, you know, incredibly moved to kind of hear about her bravery um, and the way she sort of held herself um, throughout the course of these events.
0: Hmm.
2: Because it's
0: you watch a man die on television, essentially. And it's a man who could have changed the world. But I was taken because, for whatever reason, um, and just seeing the faces of the people you're talking to, as (laughs) they, wow.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think JFK, I mean, uh, I guess JFK, the symbol, the political symbol, the symbol of hope as well, was something really... That I think you know we needed to kind of capture in the film as well. So we did need a tiny bit of context at the top in in order to sort of explain why he was sort of so significant. And you know yes. I, I'm always really moved when I watch that footage of um, those people standing around the car outside the Rockefeller Center, and you know the the young African American girl being interviewed. You yes. just really get a sense of like um, just how much he meant to people. The
0: of- of Vietnam if it wasn't if he hadn't died. Yeah, you, know, you just think, world. The world would be exponentially different, and seeing first-hand accounts of that day makes you realize what we lost. I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, we certainly. It was really. I think it was so important for us to kind of get across just how much he meant. Um, you know, he's obviously, and he's a global. He's a global symbol as well. So you know, um, it was sort of. You know someone who wasn't just important to america but you know all across the world
0: so what did you personally take away from the experience because it, it must have been horror it
2: was i think i think it was just for me it was sort of just um just understanding how much that that weekend meant to people um and sort of i think i felt incredibly privileged there to sort of witness these people telling us their stories. I mean, there's very little I, I needed to do, really, as, as a director. People were incredibly, you know, incredibly open with us and sort of they just took took us back there, took us back in time and shared. were very open and sort of shared with us, you know, not only how it felt to be there, but sort of, as, as you say, sort of the impact that these events sort of had on their lives, like Paul Landis and Clint Hill, you still get a sense that, you know, that these guys carry... A huge amount with them um, from their experiences that day.
0: So, the the one day in America series. It, it, I'm, I'm supposed to with after nine eleven and JFK. Is it going to become? Is there going to be a, a follow up part? Are you going to do another instalment?
2: There are some other instalments coming up. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say anything though.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, this sort of NDA signed sign on the dotted line. Um, <laughs> the man in black coats and turn up to yeah. So did did the idea when Nacho posed the idea to you was it one you automatically took to or thought I I definitely want to do this or was it one you had to take time to pause and reflect on before you actually did it
2: Uh, for me it was kind of it was a no brainer Um, right I think it was just, I think, as I say, I'd sort of grown up, I, you know, I'd grown up with my parents talking about it as just this moment, you know, they knew where they were at that at, at that kind of moment in time. Um, and I think, you know, and all their friends said the same thing. So it was something that, you know, I, I was intrigued by and I wanted to know more about. Um, and obviously, you know, Jackie and JFK, they are, they look like movie stars. They are these huh. icons. And so, you know, I think just to sort of to learn more about them and to learn more about the significance of of that weekend and how events unfolded, um, you know, it just seemed like um, an amazing opportunity and challenge.
0: Right, so how has, I mean, you know how I feel, about it? the reception to the show been from your perspective? Sorry, I missed that. You, how, how's the You know how I feel about it, but How's the reception to the show been? So critical response been, is it everything you hoped it would be? Is it less than you hoped it would be or is it?
2: Well, we've maybe? been, um, so we haven't actually gone to air yet. Um, yeah. uh, but we like have the
0: been- just, There's you know, people who you've spoken to about, who've seen it, the show. Ah. Oh,
2: no. um, well, so far the reception's been great. Um, we've been nominated for three Critics' Choice Awards, which is fantastic um and um so yes all the contributors who have seen it have been uh incredibly enthusiastic um I was I was in America doing some press with Peggy Simpson who um was um a female journalist for the AP who witnessed the Oswald assassination um and she was sort of saying that you know for her it was it was both incredibly it was it was incredibly moving basically and it stirred in her all those emotions that that she'd felt during that weekend um and it just she sort of said it just it brought it all back um and so I think for for me that sort of is is the aim really um you know we want it to feel we want people to kind of get a sense of those emotions and really feel what it was like to be there um so I'm you know very very happy that the people who we did interview are sort of happy with the final product
0: so how do you feel about the final product?
2: Uh, I'm very proud of it <laughs> um, as, as you should be, you should be so. <laughs> thank you very much
0: well I guess Mark's popped back up so that's about our time for today um,
2: it's lovely speaking with you
0: it's an absolute pleasure Ellie. thank you thank, thank you so much. so much Tim. I'll send you all all right. Right. Cheers, thank okay, you. you. Bye 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 let me just end this, hang on a sec stop Well, that's about it for this time, folks. Um, As ever, I hope you enjoyed the show, and hopefully you'll tune in next time. So, until then, uh, ta-ta!